have your Bibles, please turn to or tap over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Um, I was reading uh, this article this week. It was really interesting. um, It's talking about uh, this new revolution in the internet. So the, the first wave of the internet was what was called Web 1.0. And that was like, you went on websites or chat rooms, and that was, that was kind of it. You just, it was just the internet. Maybe you got a CD in the mail. I was watching someone joke about that. You know, remember when the internet used to come in the mail, you know, and you get a CD and AOL, you know, like, it was like, it used to be like $100 an hour, and then it was like the CD was like 100 free hours, because no one used using AOL anymore. Then there was the Web 2.0 revolution, and that was like when MySpace started to get traction. Anybody remember MySpace? The top eight? Yes, that was a huge deal. Who was in your top eight, your top eight friends? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. This was a, this was a huge factor in my, my getting connected to my wife, is, is getting connected on MySpace. And we loved MySpace because, or, um, MySpace because you could see you know, what someone really thought of you. And then Facebook came in, and the cool thing about Facebook was no one's parents were on Facebook yet. And so you were able to really communicate with one another, and my dad was stalking Laura, my wife, on MySpace, and so we'd talk on Facebook, and now, now, she's on, now he's on, everyone's on Facebook. And now there's the Web 3.0 revolution on the horizon. And this is uh, an idea that um, instead of one single platform where, where you can interact with, with all sorts of different people, they're starting to get very specific. And so I was reading this Forbes article this week where it says there, there can be uh, different platforms like for gamers or new moms or football fanatics that allow you to engage this network with a, a, a crafted and, and personally designed online persona called an avatar. I don't know if you, maybe you've seen like the Blue People movie from Disney. That's, that's not what a, a, Avatar Online is a, a digital image of yourself. And I know some of you have a new enough smartphone that you can create like a little cartoon version of you. I know Laura, she got a new phone. And it's like nicer than mine. And she's able to create this little cartoon image and make it look like herself and kind of pick different features. But what they're realizing, and this is becoming big business, by the way, what they're realizing is that this is going to be the next evolution of online engagement, where people can create these, these self-created personas or avatars and engage with people through this digital medium. There's an Instagram account, maybe you've heard of this, uh, called, named Lil, Mc, Lil, L-I-L, Michaela. And it's this digital AI, artificially in, intelligent, crea- computer-generated user who posts things like, hey, hanging with my best friend, like selfies, but it's a, it's a computer generated, per- it's a totally unreal person that is like on Instagram and has like one and a half million followers. And they're saying this is the new, the new revolution in, in online engagement and it's big business and it's going to get bigger and bigger. And it, and it begins, this article, the title is super revealing. The article's title is Why Identity, Fluidity, and Self-Sovereignty is Important in a Virtually Mediated Future. That's a whole big mouthful, but identity fluidity. Who am I? The question of of who am I? What's really true about me? 
Can, can my identity sort of shift and change based on my perception of myself or my desire for, uh, for how I want to project myself to other people? Um, and self-sovereignty. You know, well, how, how, can, how should I live? This is a question of behavior. How should I live in light of who I am? You, you know, the, the reason, there, there's like whole Twitter accounts called, that are dedicated to like, there's one called Don't Read the Comments. And it just literally posts every day, don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. Because if you ever want to lose faith in humanity, if you ever want the Bible's teaching of total depravity to be proven to you, go to the comment section on any news page. It doesn't matter if it's Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or New York Times or Wall Street Journal or The Blaze or whatever. People are terrible in the comments. Why is that? Because they're behaving in a way that's in line with the fact that their identity has been self-created and is sort of at a distance from other people. Third question this raises is the question of beliefs. What do we believe about what's really real? There, there's, there's actually now facial creation technology that you can mix, you know like those app apps where you can like put like, it's like really creepy because you can put your like grown up face on your kids and it like switches the face. Well, that technology is getting so advanced that you can't tell that it's fake. And it can, it can actually blend two people's faces together and create an image of a person who looks real. It doesn't look computer generated, but it's not a real person. And the question is, what's really real? This, these are questions that the modern world and our world and us in 2019, we are wrestling with. Who am I? What's true about me? What should I do? What should my behaviors and my habits be? Habits are, you Google habits, there's a news article every day. Seven successful habits, people who are highly successful, CEOs and highly successful people. Ten habits. People are all about building good habits and breaking bad habits. What should I do? What sh how should I behave? How should I live? The question of beliefs. What do I believe about what's really real? And this is why I love the Bible. Because the Bible addresses these types of questions. The Bible was written between 1500 B.C. and 90 A.D. That's a long, by the way, if you're not like with math and stuff, that's a long time ago. That was like one, that was good, that was one laugh. I like that, that was good. That's like, we're, uh, I don't know, it's like one, yeah, it's a long time ago. 1500 BC to 2000, excuse me, to 980, it's 2000 years ago. It's an ancient book that seems like, how could this have anything to say to us today? But the reality is that they were dealing with the same questions then that we're dealing with now. And the Bible provides compelling answers to these types of questions all over the place. Questions of identity, who am I? Questions of behavior, how should I live? How should I behave? What should I do? Questions of beliefs. What's really real? What should I think about what's really real? In the Bible, we find compelling answers to these questions all over the place. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to zoom in on one specific passage where these questions are addressed. We've been studying uh, the book of Ephesians, section by section, chapter by chapter, 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 uh, chapter, that's like American chapters, uh, um, and verse by verse. And we see in Ephesians 5 answers to these three questions. The book of Ephesians was actually a letter that a man named Paul wrote in about A.D. 62. And he wrote it to a group of Christians 
that were gathered together in a church. And he had actually done what we're doing here. He had started a church from scratch in the city of Ephesus. And he'd gone in, he told people about Jesus, and people believed, and they got together and they started having Bible studies and church gatherings, and they formed this, this group called a church. And, and he had been with them a few years and then gone uh, out on the rest of his mission and had been arrested and put in prison. And he's writing them this letter. And he's writing to them to remind them of what God has done. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all about how God the Father sent God the Son and then the God the Holy Spirit so that people could be brought back into relationship with God even though they'd fallen away. And how God was on a mission to bring people to God and bring people together through the cross of Jesus Christ. People hear this message of the gospel and they turn from their sin and they trust in Christ and their life is changed and they're reunited with God and they're reunited with one another across lines of difference. Like people who would never uh, vote the same way or never, never hang out in the same sort of groups come together in this new thing called the church and God is doing this new thing and creating this whole new humanity through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then the second half of the letter, we see that Paul, the apostle, is telling them, now this is how you should live your life in light of what God has done. Here's what God did, now here's what you should do. And right smack dab in the middle of this, this section, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we see that he answers these three questions. Who am I? What should I do? What's really real? Let's pray before we get into the text, and let's just ask God to speak to us and show us um, what he wants us to show, what he wants us to know, and what he, what, what we, what he wants us to see. Our Father in heaven, I just ask you that you would speak through your word. I ask that you would help us to understand that you would open our hearts up to your word and open your word up to our hearts. That we would, that, that you, you know that I've got notes that I've prepared and, and thought about and prayed through. Lord, I just pray your spirit would have freedom to, to say what needs to be said and uh, to edit me as necessary, to add in what needs to be added or delete what needs to be deleted. And you know how, Holy Spirit, you know how to apply this, this word to these people that, you know, I, I, I know them, I know a little bit about their stories, but I don't know exactly what's in their heart and exactly what they need, but you do. So I pray that you would bring this to bear on their lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Question one, the question of identity. Who are you and what's the truest thing about you? Verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Here are two things, if you are a Christian, that are true about you. First, if you are a Christian, you are a beloved child of the Father. We just sang, we just sang that truth. If you are a Christian, you are a beloved child of the Father. Second, if you are a Christian, you are a beloved and redeemed little brother or sister of God the Son. If you're a Christian, you are a beloved child of God the Father and a beloved little brother or sister of God the Son. See, when Jesus Christ, God the Son, the eternal Son with the Father and the Holy Spirit and the eternal Trinity for ever and ever and ages past before creation, when God the Son just 
willingly became a human person in the womb of Mary the virgin and was born without sin, unlike anyone else who's lived since the first ancestors we had, Adam and Eve. When he was born sinless, he lived perfectly sinlessly. And, and he was the only person who didn't deserve to die because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But he was wrongfully accused, wrongfully convicted, wrongfully condemned, and he took two rough wooden beams and he put them on his back, this was called a cross, and he walked outside of the city of Jerusalem and he began to carry that cross up toward the hill of Calvary. And they nailed him to that cross and they hung him up and he died by this ancient Roman method of execution called crucifixion. And they pierced him in the side with a spear and water and blood flowed out. And when he bore the cross and when he was punctured in his side, when, when he was mocked by those who were watching and when he bore the weight of the wrath of God singing, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he cried and gasped, you know, we usually think of it as a cry of victory. It is finished! But it was probably more like, it is finished. And he gave himself as a sacrifice and an offering for sin. He showed the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. Our sin was so dark. Your sin was so dark. Your gossip about another person, your malicious passive aggression was so bad that it took the blood of the incarnate Son of God to forgive it. But God's love was so boundless and so free that He willingly gave His Son. And this means that if you are a Christian, the extent of God's love for you is shown in the cross and he has adopted you as his child. It is not a small thing to sing, I am a child of God, who the Son sets free is free indeed. Praise God. That is the most, one of the most beautiful truths, maybe the most beautiful truth we could ever sing, but it is profoundly weighty to think what it cost God for us to be able to say that and say that in truth. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love, predestining us for adoption through Jesus Christ. When Jesus was starting his earthly ministry, first thing he did was he went and he found his cousin, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was, um, was baptizing people in the River Jordan as they were repenting of their sins and finding a new way of life. And baptism just means where you're plunged under the water and you're brought back up. It's actually a word that could be used for like doing the dishes, to submerge. And you, it's like the idea of cleaning. It's symbolic cleansing of sin and coming, going into the water and coming up out of the water. And Jesus comes up to John and John says, what are you doing? You don't need to be baptized. You don't have any sin. And Jesus said, it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Not because I'm sinful, but because my people are. And I'm going to be baptized on their behalf. And he's baptized, and he comes up out of the water, and you see the Trinity in action, because the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon God the Son, and God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And if you are in Christ, that is his word to you, my beloved, in whom I am well 
pleased. He's not angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not frustrated with you. If you are in Christ, he is pleased with you and he approves of you. The cross is God's word that despite your sin, you are beloved and redeemed by God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is erased. Your shame is undone. Your fear is defeated. And now you have no one to impress. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to lose because God has shown his love for you. There's a prophecy in the book of Zephaniah. Now, I know most of you probably do. You're reading Zephaniah all the time. That's like your go-to. It's actually an awesome book. The end of Zephaniah It gives a prophecy of the last days of the Messiah. And it says, on that day, it will be said in Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He will delight in you with singing. This is God's word to you. He is singing with joy over you. He's singing like a parent who just had their first child is singing. And he's holding you in his arms and he's singing, I love you and I'll never stop loving you. And there's never anything you could do that would make me stop loving you because all of your sin, all of the darkness and grossness of your life, I'm not ignoring that, but I paid for that through the crucifixion of my son. And if you're looking for your identity in anything else, you're going to be disappointed in the short term, and you're going to be devastated in the long term. You're not what you do. You're not how well you do it. You're not how well you do in your career or how, how well you're doing financially. You're not what you earn. You're, you're not how good your kids are. Praise God for that, right? You're not how good of a dad or a mom you are or a grandma or a grandpa. You're not your retirement plan or your or your your hobbies or your your toys your not your best talents or your ability to make things creatively you are not the logo on the hood of your car or on the inside of your clothes you are a beloved and redeemed child of god the father and adopted brother or sister of god the son and what this does what this truth does when you really get it it radically changes everything about you And it changes the second thing and the answer to the second question, what should I do? The question of behavior and habits. What should I do and not do in light of who I am? We see four answers to this question in this passage. The first thing, imitate God the Father. Verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Last year... I went shopping at the fine haberdashery known as Walmart, where I buy all my best clothing. I bought a pair of gray waterproof shorts. And um, yes, I finally, I've just given up. That's, that's just what I've done. I've given up. And I wear those shorts, and they're comfortable, and they're fine. And one day, Judson, Laura took him shopping. And she said, oh, I got some clothes for Judson. And Judson comes up to me, and she goes, he goes, Dad, I got gray waterproof shorts just like you. And every time he wears them, he's like, hey, dad, gray shorts. It's like, he wants to be like his dad. A child wants to be like their parents. A a son or a daughter wants to imitate their father. They, They want 
to be like that when they grow up. God is holy and God is love, and this means you should run away from sinning and you should run towards serving. You should want to be like your father. What did your father do? Your father sent his eternal son, his true son, to die so that you could become an adopted son or daughter. And if that's the type of love and that's the type of service that God has shown for you, how could you not want to serve others? Like Sunday at 8 a.m. on the setup team. I don't know, just saying. (laughs) Second, follow the example of Jesus, verse 2. Follow the example of Jesus. Walk in love as Christ loved us. If that's what Jesus did for us, if we don't get to just live any old way and say, well, I'm sunset's free, I'm free indeed, I'm going to do whatever the heck I want to do. Now, that's not what the gospel teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is when you've been set free, when you have been chosen and adopted to be a child of God, that you begin to live a totally different lifestyle. Walking is this picture of motion and direction and action, that that you can't stay stable in the Christian life. You can't stay stagnant. You can't just remain in one spot. You're either losing ground or you're taking ground. You're either moving toward Christ or away from Christ. There's no neutral. There's no maintenance. There is only advance or retreat. Walk in love. Third, don't do dirty deeds. Verses 3 and 4. But section, I notice he, said, he mentioned six things here. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talk, 4 and 5, or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. The gospel means that the church is always a safe place for sinners, but it's never a safe place for sin. It's never a place where you can sin, walk in unrighteousness, walk in unrepentance, walk in wickedness, and people be like, yo, God loves you, it's fine. No, because the gospel and the kindness of God leads us to repentance. He says, let them not even, look at verse 3, even be named among you. Let there not be a hint. Let them not even be heard of. Not a whiff. Now, the fact that he commands this, by the way, is hope for those who have fallen into patterns of sin, these or others, because he wouldn't command change if people hadn't fallen out of step with the truth of the gospel and the way of Jesus. So the fact that he's commanding it means there's hope for you. Hope for you, that if you're broken and sinful like we all are, that there is hope for you. Not hope that God's just going to accept what you're doing and living uh, uh, that's against what he's proclaimed and he's revealed in his word, but hope for repentance and hope for new life and a new way. Sexual morality is the Greek word porneia. That's where we get the word pornography. It was actually a word that was originally used for selling and the marketplace of prostitution. And it was, it was this idea that, that, you know, there were all sorts of acceptable boundaries of sexual expression in the ancient world. It was a whole lot like 21st century USA, that there are all sorts of things that are okay. And then the Judeo-Christian ethic comes on the scene with a radical vision 
that there is only one place where that sort of expression is acceptable. And God has designed it as a good gift, but there are boundaries. It's like a fire that must stay in the fireplace or it will burn down the house. Sexual immorality, impurity. This is like the catch-all. You're like, well, I'm not sexually impure, sexually immoral, but are you impure? Is your, is your mind clouded by impure thoughts? Are your, are, is there, is there this, this, this sort of this, this, this tinge to the way you think and the way you speak? Again, not even a hint. Not a second glance, not a second thought. Now, here's the third one. Now, this gets into the kitchen of the 21st century Western church because he puts... Now, here's the thing. Christians in the church are really good at pointing out the sexual sins of the world. They're really good at saying, man, look at how messed up things are. And they are messed up. Let's just be honest. They're messed up. Sexual ethics and sexual identity and all that in our world is, things have gone, uh, gone haywire. And the church loves to point that out. But then they ignore this third thing, greed. So it, as long as you're outwardly conforming to some pattern of sexual morality as displayed in the scripture, or at least seeming to, lots of stuff's coming out where the church has been just as bad, if not worse, than the world. But then it's okay if you pursue the American dream, try to get as much as you can and live a life of lacking generosity and wanting more and more for yourself. Now, it's not a problem with having more. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Chapter 4, verse 28, which we saw a couple weeks ago, says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. The cliche way to say it is God blesses you to be a blessing. I was reading an article yesterday that um, it, it was from actually like a year ago, but it was, it, there were some statistics that came out that the, the church is never, has never been more persecuted and in danger than it, it, it is right now. Now, we don't feel like that because we're like, good, we can put out signs and we can put Facebook ads and we can do all this stuff for our church and no one's going to say anything. No, now, some people might not care, but they're not going to be like coming in Gestapo style and shutting us down. We're not going to prison for preaching the Bible. But in many parts of the world, people are literally dying because they're Christians. And we have been blessed with, in the richest society in human history, a church that is free to worship, and we've disobeyed Hebrews 13.3. Do not forget your brothers and sisters in chains. We're greedy. We have to see, this implies two things. If the church is a family, the first thing is we have to have a way to allocate funds toward people who need it. And that second, people are honest about their needs. So how can we serve the global church under threat of persecution? How can we serve you if you're in need? Well, we can't if you don't let us know. We, ha we have, like one way is like we have on the giving tab on crossunited.org at the giving platform, there's a way to choose general undesignated giving, which is where most giving goes, where most giving should go but there's also a benevolence tab. And that just is for people who need it. That, doesn't go, that just goes straight through the church. We met someone at Panera Bread. Me and another guy were talking, and she was in need, and our church helped meet her need. 
Another way is just you all helping one another, being honest with one another and serving and, and sharing. And I know that's already happening in some ways, but we need to be able to stop living greedy lives, both as a church as a whole in the West, for our brothers and sisters in chains, and also with one another, to be honest and open and to be generous. And I'm not saying this as like beat down, because I know this is already happening, but I'm just saying that we can be really good at pointing out the sexual sins of the world and not pointing out the monetary sins of the church. Fourth, obscene talk. Ugliness, as opposed to beauty, is how one writer says it. Discussing or singing about ugly sexual behavior as a form of entertainment. So let's just talk about the shows you're watching on Netflix. Maybe you're not saying it, but you're watching and you're chuckling, because I am too. And it's like, oh man, that's not right. But you're laughing. Should not even be named among us. And I'm not being like some sort of puritanical, like, well, you know, don't watch TV or something like that. But I'm just saying, what are we finding entertaining? Foolish talk. We're obsessed with foolishness. Fool, you know, like just, just, just foolish. Foolishness is, is stuff that's just, that is, is against the wisdom of the way of God. And, and just common sense in life. And, you know, there's a time for having fun. There's a time for not being uptight. But foolishness is foolishness. We laugh at it. We joke about it. Sixth is crude joking. Off-color jokes, double entendres. We joke and we laugh. We kind of like cringe a little, but chuckle. Someone says something and we just sort of don't say anything. Like, man, I don't know if that we should be talking like that. So much of this is the way we speak to one another. And the contrast to all of this, look in verse 4. Instead, rather, let there be giving thanks. The difference of all of these ways of life are gratitude. Why? Every single one of these things is about getting something for ourselves. Gratitude is about giving thanks for someone else. And notice in verse 3, it says, as proper among saints. So you're a beloved, redeemed, and holy child of God. You are a saint. Saint is not someone who did something miraculous sometime in the past. A saint is anyone who is in Christ. The Bible calls it a, the hagioi, the holy ones. A saint is a holy one. You have been set apart. You have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. If you are in Christ, you are a saint, child, redeemed. Fourth thing, how should you live? Don't be deceived, verses 5 and 6. For you know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person, notice those correspond to the first three things he says, sexual morality, impurity, or greedy, which is idolatry. By the way, he only counts greed as idolatry. Greed is idolatry. He doesn't say that about sexual immorality. Does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you, verse 6, with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. This ties into the third question then. Don't be deceived. What is really real? The third big question about beliefs. What is really real? What is really real? And here the text gives us two things. 
two things that are real. They're more real than the chair you're sitting on. They're more real than anything you count as real in your life. And that is the good news of God's love and redemption in verses 1 and 2, and the bad news of God's judgment of sin in verses 5 and 6. We live in a world that is haunted by spiritual powers. But we're taught, there were, I don't know if I shared this before, when Laura and I got married, uh, her brother got us, this was like old school, there were these things, and they came, and they were like a round disc, and they had like movies on them, it was called a DVD, and you put it in there, and you'd watch it, and it had like four, four things like TV shows per disc, and you turn on, and so he bought us all nine seasons of Everybody Loves Raymond on DVD. And we were married, just newly married. And so we watched two, I don't know if this is something to be proud of or ashamed of. We watched all nine seasons of Everybody Loves Raymond over the course of, I don't know, however many months. And at the, as we approached the end of it, I just felt like kind of empty it was funny and it was cute and stuff like that and it wasn't you know usually it was pretty clean and but what i told i told laura is like i feel like this is deceiving us into thinking that life in this world is all there is that it has a vision of life that is not based in what god says is reality and that there will be redemption or judgment based on how you respond to christ in this life We already talked about the good news of God's love and redemption in verses 1 and 2, that God sent his son to die on the cross for sin so that anyone who trusts in him will have everlasting life, be forgiven, cleansed, and given new life. The converse of that, the other side of that, is that there will be judgment for anyone who does not. That upon the disobedient, upon people who live life contrary to God's standards, there will be judgment. And you will either be in the new heavens and new earth, in the eternal kingdom, you will either be a citizen of the kingdom of God or you will be rejected and discarded and cast out of the kingdom of God based on your response to Christ in this life. You will either be a free citizen, a child of God, yes I am, or you will be a prisoner in the dungeon reserved for Satan, sin, and death. And this leads us to a final question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to believe? Are you going to turn from your sin and trust in him? Some of you have never done that, and today is the day you need to make that step and that decision to trust in Christ, to become a Christian, to say, Jesus, I turn from my sin and my old way of life, I know that I'm broken. I know that I'm sinful. I know that I can't fix it. I've tried over and over, and I've tried five different things, and none of them have worked. And I need you. I need you to forgive me and to cleanse me and to make me new. Some of you have never done that, and that's what you need to do today. Others of you have done that, but you need to do it again. Martin Luther said all of life is repentance, that we never outgrow the need to turn from our sin and trust in Christ. What does it mean to do that? It just means to believe what is real to believe that God's love for you in the cross is the truest thing about you and to live like it. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would teach everyone here how to respond, that you would um, 
Give them the boldness and the faith to step across the line from unbelief into belief. If they have never turned from their sin and trusting Christ and become a Christian, I pray, Lord, that you'd be working even now and they would do that. And if that's you, just, just take a moment and just tell God that you know you need him. You know you need Jesus. You know you need forgiveness. You know you need new life. And there's a spot on your connection card on the bottom right-hand side. And you can just check that, that today you, you made Jesus your Lord and Savior. And you can bring that up to me at the end, or you can put that in the offering box if you're, you, you, you don't want to make a big deal about it right this second. But we'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that decision. Maybe you know you need to take the step of just remembering and renewing again your hope and trust in the gospel, that God has chosen you as his child that you have no one to impress, you have nothing to prove, that your sin and your shame do not define you, that the way you snapped at your kids this morning does not define you, that what you looked at last night does not define you, but you're going to turn from your sin and you're going to accept the free forgiveness of Christ, God the Father sent God the Son and the power of God the Holy Spirit to set you free. Will you turn and trust in Him yet again? And in Jesus' name we pray, oh Father, make it true in us. Amen.